Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. In this fifth episode of our series, Exploring the Civil War in the Shoals in the Tennessee Valley, we will discuss the battles of Fort Henry and Fort Donelson in February 1862, and the very swift and palpable impacts they had upon life in the Shoals. Last time we talked about the naive optimism that pervaded the society during the year 1861. The events we will discuss today will begin to dispel those childish, misconceived notions and introduce the valley to the realities of warfare. By the fall of 1861, federal forces were advancing against rebels in the West in the hotly divided state of Kentucky. While Kentucky's government officially proclaimed strict neutrality, the governor was sympathetic to the Confederacy and flatly rejected Lincoln's summons to supply the federal army with recruits. Eventually, as in Tennessee and Alabama, both Union and Confederate regiments would be organized from the state. Kentucky, despite initially seeking to remain a neutral arbitrator between the two sides, being the northernmost border state of the South, skirting the Ohio River along the entirety of her northern border, could not avoid taking part in the conflict, and was naturally to be the earliest theater of battle in the West. On September 3rd, 1861, the Confederates, under command of Leonidas Polk and Gideon Pillow, occupied Columbus, Kentucky, strategically significant because it is where the Mobile and Ohio Railroad met the Mississippi River. This allowed the rebels to check any Union movements on the Mississippi with a supply line allowing for swift reinforcements and resupplies stretching clear to the Gulf of Mexico. It also had the effect of galvanizing anti-Confederate sentiment in Kentucky for violating the state's neutrality. In response to this maneuver, Ulysses S. Grant, recently promoted to Brigadier General, did them one better and seized Paducah at the mouth of the Tennessee River four days later on September 7th. The federal forces were concentrated at Cairo, Illinois, where the Ohio River meets the Mississippi. Grant, in his memoir, describes how contact between the two opposing armies at this stage in the conflict was ironically quaint and personal. To quote Grant, quote, While at Cairo, I had frequent opportunities of meeting the rebel officers of the Columbus garrison. They seemed to be very fond of coming up on steamers under flags of truce. There were several officers among them whom I had known before, both at West Point and in Mexico. End quote. It is very curious to realize the trained officer corps at the onset of war was so small, it was a common experience for Civil War commanders to be personally familiar with the commander on the opposing side of the battlefield. By November, a stalemate had taken shape. Union forces were defeated at Belmont, Missouri on the 7th of November, 1861. Grant was lucky to escape with his life. Meanwhile, there was paralysis on the Potomac following the disastrous and humiliating Union defeat at Manassas. The Federal Army at Washington, D.C., for all intents and purposes, would be out of the war for the remainder of 1861. All eyes were on the war in the West, and the nation, as well as the Lincoln administration, were eager to see progress. The Confederate line of defense in the West, which had now developed, was vast and a pure logistical nightmare. 
The front line ran from Columbus, Kentucky, on the Mississippi River in the west, through Fort Henry on the Tennessee, and Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River, on to Bowling Green and Mill Springs, Kentucky, and clear across to Cumberland Gap in the east. Fort Henry was the weak link in the chain. Fort Henry was located on a stretch of the Tennessee River, where the Tennessee and Cumberland flow parallel extremely close to one another, only about 11 miles apart, for approximately 75 miles. Fort Donelson was located on the Cumberland, on the other side of this narrow strip of land, adjacent to Fort Henry. It was a point of extreme tactical significance for both sides, and the loss of these forts by the Confederates would be a crippling blow with wide-reaching repercussions. The strategic significance of these fortifications was apparent to both sides. As Grant later succinctly recalled, quote, These positions were of immense importance to the enemy, and, of course, correspondingly important for us to possess ourselves of. With Fort Henry in our hands, we had a navigable stream open to us up to the Muscle Shoals in Alabama. The Memphis and Charleston Railroad strikes the Tennessee at Eastport, Mississippi, and follows close to the banks of the river up to the shoals. End quote. He then says, somewhat exaggerating, quote, This road, of vast importance to the enemy, would cease to be of any use to them for through traffic the moment Fort Henry became ours. End quote. He then describes, quite correctly, how, once in possession of Fort Henry and then Fort Donelson, quote, the enemy would necessarily be thrown back to the Memphis and Charleston Road or to the boundary of the Cotton States, end quote. By late in the autumn of 1861, as Union commanders began eyeing the fort as the next logical target, Confederate leaders were in turn becoming increasingly nervous that Union forces would soon attempt to break through their line and launch an invasion up the Tennessee River. From Columbus, Kentucky, on the 20th of November, 1861, Brigadier General Gideon Pillow wrote to a delegation of several Alabamians, including Sam D. Weekly, a prominent citizen of Florence, to express the precarity of the rebel defensive situation. He said, quote, In regard to the question, do I consider the Tennessee River safe? I answer unhesitatingly that I do not. End quote. He explains that fortification known as Fort Henry, guarding the Tennessee River near the Tennessee Kentucky border, is the best they could construct with the time and means at their disposal, but they still require labor to construct additional works and troops to garrison the fort, which he asks Alabama to provide. He concludes, quote, If Alabama will furnish the means of constructing these works and the forces to garrison them with arms, etc., the troops from that state will be placed in them for the purpose of defending them, thus allowing her to hold the keys of the gateway into her own territory. End quote. The next day, November 21st, General Albert Sidney Johnston, commanding Confederate forces in the West, wrote to the governors of Alabama and Mississippi asking for troops, quote, to oppose the formidable invasion about to be made by the enemy upon the northern line of Tennessee, end quote. To the governor of Alabama, he specifically requested that the troops must be mustered from North Alabama. The exigency of the situation clearly required forces with immediate access to the river. 
The aforementioned Sam Wakely and his associates wrote to the Confederate Secretary of War, J.P. Benjamin, at Richmond on November 22nd with their response to the urgent necessity of reinforcing, reinforcing Fort Henry imparted upon them by General Pillow. They summarized just what was at stake. Quote, there was danger of the enemy ascending the Tennessee River and burning the railroad bridge across it just above Fort Henry and separating our army at Bowling Green from that at Columbus and of destroying the Mobile and Ohio and the Memphis and Charleston railroads for it is only 18 miles from the big bend of the Tennessee to their junction at Corinth. End quote. They proposed to immediately proceed to raise forces to garrison and improve the works at Fort Henry. Curiously, they say... Quote, we propose to organize a company of old men armed in each county in North Alabama for 40 days. Our reasons for this are that they are, in general, not only better marksmen than the generation now growing up, but the very fact of gray-headed men moving to the field will give an impetus to volunteering, which we need just now. End quote. Also on November 22nd, from Columbus, General Pillow wrote to Governor Harris of Tennessee, exasperated, to plead for reinforcements, with the opening line, quote, We know we shall be attacked soon. End quote. The next day, November 23rd, 1861, from Tuscumbia, Alabama, a formal call to arms was issued to the people of the Tennessee Valley in the form of a circular letter. The text is found in the official records, volume 7, page 694, and goes as follows. Quote, to our fellow citizens of North Alabama and North Mississippi, the undersigned were sent as delegates from a number of counties in North Alabama and Tishomingo County, Mississippi, to the camp at Columbus, Kentucky, to inquire of the military authorities there if they considered the defenses of the Tennessee River safe, and, if not, to tender material aid to make them so. We had several interviews with General Pillow, now commanding the department in consequence of an injury to Major General Polk from bursting of a gun. We asked if he considered the defenses of the Tennessee River safe. He answered, without hesitation, he did not. He said they were as good as could be constructed in the time allowed and with the means afforded, and most cheerfully accepted the tender of aid which we were sent to make. Order was sent to Captain Dixon, an able engineer, to project the works required, and we now come to you for several thousand volunteers to be stationed on the Tennessee River, five thousand if they can be raised, and as many Negro men as can be raised. End quote. It is important to note here that enslaved African Americans were to be impressed to labor in constructing these improvements to the fortifications. Participation in the Confederate war effort, therefore, was certainly not purely voluntary. Also, it is worth noting that, at this time, 5,000 volunteers, white male volunteers, that is, was a substantial percentage of the total size of the community. The city of Florence itself at this time only had about 1,400 residents, male and female. As per the 1860 census, there were only 5,259 white males living in all of Franklin County, 5,300 in Lauderdale, and only 3,600 in Lawrence County. In fact, if you add together the number of white males in Lauderdale, Franklin, Limestone, Lawrence, Morgan, and Madison counties, you find that 
5,000 volunteers would constitute fully 18% of the total white male population. That's nearly one out of five being called to volunteer. The letter continues, quote, we propose to raise a regiment of men past middle life to serve during the emergency, but the younger men will be enrolled for 12 months. The whole force we must arm with shotguns and rifles, with which a strongly fortified position can be defended as perfectly as with a musket and bayonet, for the bayonet cannot be used there. We have applied to the governor to have an act passed for the purchase of arms and their compressment when necessary, and giving power to impress Negro men when necessary to labor on the public works. We have no expectation that force will be necessary, however. We expect a community so patriotic as ours to furnish their private arms for the public service or become volunteers and use them. The impression that many men have that they will be more secure by retaining their arms for their personal defense is a great error. The true policy for Southern people is to keep the enemy at a distance. If he is suffered to penetrate into the interior, we shall find our private arms of little benefit. In this hour of our peril, the man who loves his family best provides for their safety by meeting the enemy at the threshold of the country. End quote. As we saw last time, men faced social pressure rooted in a sense of patriotism, duty, masculinity, and honor to enlist in Confederate regiments. Now, as invasion of the Tennessee Valley looked increasingly likely, they were told that if they loved their families, they should enlist, leave their homes, and fight to keep the enemy at bay in order to keep their loved ones safe. It was a powerfully emotional appeal. Quote, if our people at home were convinced, as we are, that a deadly struggle for our homes and property is impending, that the enemy in a few days will put forth his whole strength for our subjugation, they would rally en masse for the public defense. End quote. Here is expressed with more evocative language that the threat at hand is not merely a deadly struggle for the well-being of the homes and property, but against so-called subjugation. In other words, to be violently, violently coerced into a position of social and political inequality, not unlike that of the enslaved African Americans among them. The letter concludes, quote, the volunteers will be sent down the river as they are organized, and we invite the aid of our wives and daughters to prepare clothing and tents for them. Our young men at Columbus are not only enduring the hardships of the camp and meeting gallantly the hazards of battle, but laboring in the trenches with spades and shovels now, and who are we that we should be exempt from the burdens imposed for the common defense?" End quote. It is signed Samuel D. Weekly, James E. Saunders, Thomas J. Foster, David Deschler, William Dixon, William Cooper, and B.B. Trousdale. This letter illustrates how the entire society of the Tennessee Valley, from the men being called to volunteer to the women asked to labor to furnish them with clothing and shelter, and enslaved African Americans being impressed to construct fortifications, was now mobilized for war. Only one year after the election that split the nation apart and sparked secession, the Shoals and the Tennessee Valley were transforming completely to meet the enormous requirements of mobilization for war. 
J.P. Cannon at this time finally secured his father's permission to enlist. He recalls the formation of his regiment, the 27th Alabama, mustered into service, consisting of men who answered the call of the Tuscumbia Circular Letter of November 23rd. According to Cannon, quote, in the fall of 1861, it was generally believed and so published in the newspapers that the Federals were planning an invasion by way of the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers, and this news created a sensation throughout North Alabama. The war was coming to our very doors. Our Negroes would be freed, stock driven off, and the beautiful valley of the Tennessee devastated. The time had come for every man to shoulder his gun. President Davis issued an urgent call for volunteers, stating in the call that the men must arm themselves as he had no arms to give them. There were no examinations by surgeons as to physical condition, nor were youth or old age a bar to eligibility. Every man or boy capable of handling a gun was gladly received, and no questions were asked. By the 24th of December, 1861, ten companies of about 100 each had been enrolled and assembled in Florence. We were mustered into the service of the Confederate States by General S.D. Weekly of Florence. In the afternoon of the same day, with our 1,000 double-barreled shotguns and our 1,000 long bowie knives, we proudly marched to the river where a boat was waiting to bear us to the war." End quote. The soldiers of the 27th Alabama thus departed Florence on Christmas Eve, 1861, and spent Christmas Day on a steamboat headed downriver, and then arrived at Fort Henry on December 26th. One of those soldiers, of Company K from Lawrence County, was 34-year-old Archibald Archie Roden, my fourth great-grandfather. The task before the soldiers and the enslaved laborers was to construct and occupy a new and improved fortification directly across the river from Fort Henry called Fort Hyman, because by this point it was apparent that Fort Henry was poorly equipped and situated in an untenable location. The Confederate commander in charge of the fort was Brigadier General Lloyd Tillman. By the time the letter calling for volunteers was circulating late in November 1861, Tillman pessimistically remarked, quote, I have completed a thorough examination of Henry and Donaldson and do not admire the aspect of things. End quote. Tillman directed his efforts toward securing reinforcements and expanding earthworks for defense, but his efforts were ultimately to be in vain. Fort Henry was constructed at the riverbank on what was essentially a floodplain, periodically inundated by high water, both from the backwater of the creeks and sloughs nearby and the river itself at flood stage. Already on the 28th of November, as men from the Tennessee Valley were mustering in preparation for defense of Fort Henry, an engineer named Lieutenant Dixon, having been ordered to inspect the soundness of the nearly completed fortress, informed General Polk, who informed General Johnston, that Fort Henry was, quote, not built at the most favorable position, but that it was a strong work, and instead of abandoning it and building it at another place, it should be completed and other works constructed on the opposite side of the river, on the highlands just above the fort. End quote. Confederate High Command was perfectly aware of the precarious situation of the fort, but having already invested in fortifying the location and invasion looming at any moment, they had little choice but to hunker down and try to make the most of it. 
Tillman was in charge of a sinking ship. By this time, the Federal Command headquartered in St. Louis, with significant presence at Cairo, Illinois, and Paducah, Kentucky, were eyeing their next move, and Fort Henry was ripe for the picking. The Union commander at St. Louis was Henry Halleck, known to subordinates irreverently as Old Brains. He was a bookish and scheming commander, whom Lincoln once infamously described as, quote, little more than a first-rate clerk, end quote. Lincoln, exasperated with the paralysis his armies were facing on all fronts, had issued orders for all armies in the field to move on February 22, 1862. McClellan in Washington, infamous for his inaction, will find an excuse why he can't. Grant, famous for precisely the opposite reason, will have already been in motion for three weeks. Ulysses S. Grant, known to his friends as Sam, largely took credit in his memoirs for the plan to invade the Tennessee Valley via Fort Henry. As quoted earlier, he was already well aware of the strategic significance held by the two forts, Henry and Donelson. By January 1862, Grant had secured permission to come to St. Louis to elucidate his plan to Halleck. Grant said of the meeting, quote, I was received with so little cordiality that I perhaps stated the object of my visit with less clearness than I might have done, and I had not uttered many sentences before I was cut short, as if my plan was preposterous. I returned to Cairo, crestfallen. End quote. Curiously, Grant's own friend, General William Tecumseh Sherman, recalled in his own memoirs that Grant's recollection of his originality of the idea to invade the Tennessee Valley by way of Fort Henry was largely overstated, and that the true credit was due to old brains. Sherman recounted the following incident. Quote, Though it was midwinter, General Halleck was pushing his preparations most vigorously. I remember one night sitting in his room with him and General Collum, talking of things generally, and the subject then was of the much-talked-of advance, as soon as the season would permit. General Halleck had a map on his table with a large pencil in his hand, and asked, Where is the rebel line? Collum drew the pencil through Bowling Green, Forts Donaldson and Henry, and Columbus, Kentucky. That is their line, said Halleck. Now where is the proper place to break it? And either Column or I said, naturally the center. Halleck drew a line perpendicular to the other, near its middle, and it coincided nearly with the general course of the Tennessee River, and he said, that's the true line of operations. This occurred more than a month before General Grant began the movement, and, as he was subject to General Halleck's orders, I have always given Halleck the full credit for that movement, which was skillful, successful, and extremely rich in military results. Indeed, it was the first real success of our side during the Civil War." End quote. Regardless of the person who first had the idea in the Union High Command, by January 1862, the consensus was, clearly, that the next logical step in the war in the West was to secure access to the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers by way of Forts Henry and Donelson. Grant had in his corner commander of the Union gunboat fleet at Cairo, the naval officer Commodore Andrew Hull Foote, who agreed with Grant that swift action on the two rivers, spearheaded by ample gunboat support, was pivotal in turning the tide of war in favor of the Federals in the West.
Foote had a remarkable naval career before the war, suppressing the Atlantic slave trade in Africa, which had been banned by both Great Britain and the United States, and he wrote a book published in 1854 called Africa and the American Flag. He seems to be rather remarkably ahead of his time by 19th century standards in that he unequivocally condemns slavery as an evil and places the blame squarely at the feet of European colonizers. In describing the image of a slave ship at sea, he says, quote, This deceitful beauty may conceal wrong, violence, and crime, the theft of living men, the foulness and corruption of the steaming slave deck, and the charnel house of wretchedness and despair. End quote. Foote's attitude of compassion for those victims of the slave trade even seems to surpass common modern attitudes. He said, The 17th and 18th centuries were especially the era of woe to the African people. Crime against them on the part of the European nations had become gross in cruelty and universal in extent. From the Cape of Good Hope to the Mediterranean, in respect to their lands or their persons, the European was seizing, slaying, and enslaving. End quote. As Grant was lobbying from Cairo to Halleck in St. Louis for permission to attack the rebels at Fort Henry and Donelson, Foote would prove to be a kindred spirit and ally. By the end of January 1862, having first failed to secure the go-ahead to lead the assault of the forts, Grant again wrote to Halleck, seeking permission to make the move, this time with the written support of Commodore Foote. For whatever reason, this time, Grant received the permission he was waiting for, and immediately began preparing for the expedition. The army was to land downstream of the fortification, out of range of the mounted guns, while the flotilla of gunboats was to weaken the defenses with a bombardment from the water. After the shelling, the army would move overland and take the fort. As fate would have it, there would not be much of a need for the army, or much of a fight for them. As the battle commenced on the 6th of February, 1862, the fort was already flooded due to heavy rains, with water still rising. Tillman had already taken measures to evacuate the majority of his forces, including those constructing the more aptly located Fort Hyman, to Fort Donelson on the Cumberland. As gunboats bore down on the submerged fortress, only a skeleton crew remained to man the guns. The Union army, for their part, were hopelessly delayed by the poor conditions. It is important for you to realize, and I cannot possibly overstate, that conditions of the roads at this time are nothing like what we would recognize today. They are unpaved, deep with ruts from wagon wheels, and where there is abundant precipitation, as here in February 1862, they become deep mud holes, where heavy supply wagons and artillery caissons become hopelessly lodged. In short, a logistical nightmare. Reading reports from the Civil War, one sees time and again a frustrated commander lamenting the condition of the roads. While Grant and his land forces struggled through the mire to make ground toward the fort, Commodore Foote and the gunboats were well at work, diminishing the scant Confederate forces' will to retain control of their doomed position. 
The Union Flotilla, commanded by Commodore Foote, consisted of four ironclad gunboats, the Cincinnati, Essex, Carondelet, and St. Louis, as well as the timber-clad gunboats Lexington, Tyler, and Conestoga. The four ironclads led the squadron in a parallel line, with the older timber-clads in the rear. When the flagship reached 1,700 yards from the fort, firing commenced at 12.30 on the afternoon of the 6th of February, 1862, with the gunboats opening fire and the fort responding. After an hour and 15 minutes of constant barrage, the rebel flag was hauled down from the mast inside the fort, and a parley arranged between Foot and Tillman aboard the flagship. That ship, the Essex had the unfortunate distinction of receiving a shot directly through one of her boilers, which exploded, killing or wounded by scalding some 32 men, including Captain Porter. Tillman had done all a person could possibly do to retain possession of the fort. The location was simply untenable, which he was later to recount in his reports. Quote, to understand properly the difficulties of my position, it is right that I should explain fully the unfortunate location of Fort Henry. The history of military engineering records no parallel to this case. End quote. Grant and the infantry under his command arrived at Fort Henry on the afternoon of the 6th without having fired an offensive shot. The few remaining men in the fort who had not evacuated to Fort Donelson surrendered to Flag Officer Foote and his gunboat flotilla before Grant even arrived. Now, Grant's attention at once turned towards Donelson, 11 miles distant to the east on the Cumberland. Both the Federal High Command and the Northern Press were absolutely jubilant with the news of the capture of the fort. At a time when the war was in a state of paralysis, the public and the publishers were eagerly fixated on the developments as a golden nugget of good news and a sign of progress in favor of the Union. Halleck wrote to Foote, quote, I have this moment received the official report of your capture of Fort Henry and hasten to congratulate you and your command for our brilliant success, end quote. News of the battle was reported as far away as Birmingham, England, complete with details such as the exploded boiler aboard the Essex. The Chicago Tribune reported on February 8th that following the battle, quote, the Tennessee River is now open to our gunboats clear up to the Muscle Shoals in North Alabama. At least we do not know of any battery on the river above Fort Henry that would obstruct their ascent. This lets our troops into a country well-stocked with contrabands and cotton. Hands off at Washington. Let the Western boys go in and win. End quote. The Northern press seems to have exaggerated somewhat the implications of the victory. In Fall River, Massachusetts, on February 10th, an article appeared under the title, Talk of Peace. Quote, the Tribune's Washington correspondent says talk of peace and a restoration of the Union has revived with the news of the taking of Fort Henry. The olive branch is waving considerably tonight. The vacant chair of slavery in the national legislature will be dusted soon by pious hands and got ready for reoccupation. End quote. This does at least show that the federal success on the Tennessee for the first time in the war, gave the North a sense of optimism that their cause would prevail. As Sherman said, quote, it was the first real success on our side during the Civil War, end quote. 
we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore the remarkable and dramatic events which followed the capture of Fort Henry and the stunning results on life here in the Shoals. Please stay with us. Proportional to the jubilation in the North, Southern leaders and publishers lamented the loss of Fort Henry and hastily regrouped their strategic objectives in the West. Riding from Bowling Green three days after the capture of the fort, General Albert Sidney Johnston informed the Confederate Secretary of War, J.P. Benjamin, that the capture of Fort Henry and now looming prospect of the capture of Donelson as well necessitated a withdrawal of Confederate forces from Bowling Green to Nashville, or they would find themselves cut off from anywhere south of the Cumberland should Donelson be captured. With the capture of Fort Henry, the Confederate line of defense was forced to withdraw south of the Cumberland River. For the Shoals, however, the most relevant and immediate consequence of the capture of Fort Henry involved an expedition of gunboats under command of one Lieutenant Commander Phelps, dispatched by Commodore Foote down the river, apparently at General Grant's request, according to Grant anyway, in order to destroy the railroad bridge of the Memphis and Ohio Railroad, which crossed the Tennessee River approximately 25 miles upstream of the fort three Union gunboats embarked on the mission, the Conestoga, Lexington, and Tyler. According to the report of Lieutenant Commander Phelps, which begins on page 153 of Volume 7 of the official records, once they reached the bridge, which was drawn down and disabled, the squadron caught sight of several rebel transport steamers escaping upstream ahead of their advance. Once the bridge had been opened to allow them to pass, Phelps ordered the slowest of the three, the Tyler, to stay behind and rip up the railroad tracks while the Lexington and Conestoga gave chase to the fleeing rebels. Within a short time, the rebels abandoned three of their boats and set fire to them. As they were loaded down with military ordnance, two of the boats exploded, and Phelps reports that, even at a distance of 1,000 yards, the skylights aboard his vessel were shattered by the shockwave of the second of the blasts. After waiting for the Tyler to catch back up to the group, the intrepid Federals continued downstream deeper into the valley of the Tennessee. To quote Phelps, quote, At the night of the 7th, we arrived at a landing in Hardin County, Tennessee, known as Cerro Gordo, where we found a steamer, Eastport, being converted into a gunboat. She had been scuttled and the suction pipes broken. These leaks were soon stopped, and a number of rifle shots were fired at our vessels, but a couple of shells dispersed the rebels." End quote. Lieutenant Commander Phelps determined the vessel was in fine condition, with a great quantity of lumber designed for her defensive plating laid out on the riverbank, ready for fitting out. He therefore directed the Tyler and her commander, Lieutenant Commander Gwen, to stay behind to guard this prize, while he, with the Conestoga and Lexington, ascended the river even higher up, to become, arguably, the first federal force to enter the seceded state of Alabama during the war. As they did so, they would steam past the point on the west bank of the river, known as Pittsburgh Landing, 
where, in exactly two months, the largest battle the continent had ever seen would take place, and in which they themselves would be instrumental in turning the tide. But we'll learn more about that next time. For the time being, Phelps and the Federal Flotilla had fish to fry, and those fish were upstream. To quote Phelps again, quote, Soon after daylight on the 8th, we passed Eastport, Mississippi, and at Chickasaw, further up, near the state line, seized two steamers, the Sally Wood and Muscle, the former laid up, the latter freighted with iron, destined for Richmond and for rebel use. We then proceeded on up the river, entering the state of Alabama, and ascended to Florence, at the foot of the Muscle Shoals. On coming inside of the town, three steamers were discovered, which were immediately set on fire by the rebels. Some shots were fired from the opposite side of the river below. A force was landed, and considerable quantities of supplies marked Fort Henry were secured from the burning wrecks. Some had been landed and stored. These I seized, putting such as we could bring away on board our vessels, and destroying the remainder. No flats or other craft could be found. I found also more of the iron plating intended for the east port. The arrival of the Federal gunboats at Florence caused a sensation in the town and the Tennessee Valley. The citizens seemed to have felt a great amount of anxiety about their presence, yet this apprehension was also apparently mixed with curiosity, as Phelps recounted. Quote, a deputation of citizens of Florence waited upon me, first desiring that they might be made able to quiet the fears of their wives and daughters with assurances from me that they should not be molested, and secondly, praying that I would not destroy their railroad bridge. As for the first, I told them that we were neither ruffians nor savages, and that we were there to protect them from violence and to enforce the law and with reference to the second, that if the bridge were away, we could ascend no higher, and that it could possess, so far as I saw, no military importance, as it simply connected Florence itself with the railroad on the south side of the river. We have seized three of their steamers, one the half-finished gunboat, and had forced the rebels to burn six others loaded with supplies, and their loss with that of the freight is a heavy blow to the enemy." Two boats are still known to be on the river, and are doubtless hidden in some of the creeks, where we shall be able to find them when there is time for the search. End quote. And then, in a description whose details would be amplified and reverberated throughout the northern press, Phelps concluded, quote, I now come to the most interesting portion of the report— we have met with the most gratifying proofs of loyalty everywhere across Tennessee, and in the portions of Mississippi and Alabama we visited, most affecting instances greeted us almost hourly. Men, women, and children several times gathered in crowds of hundreds, shouted their welcome, and hailed their national flag with an enthusiasm there was no mistaking. It was genuine and heartfelt. These people braved everything to go to the riverbank, where a sight of their flag might once again be enjoyed, and they have experienced, as they related, every possible form of persecution. 
Tears flowed freely down the cheeks of men as well as women. This display of feeling and sense of gladness at our success and the hopes it created in the breasts of so many people in the heart of the Confederacy astonished us not a little, and I assure you, sir, I would not have failed to witness it for any consideration. I think it has given us a higher sense of the sacred character of our present duties. In Tennessee, the people generally, in their enthusiasm, braved secessionists and spoke their views freely. But in Mississippi and Alabama, what was said was guarded. If we dared express ourselves freely, you would hear such a shout greeting you coming as never you heard. We know there are many unionists among us, but a reign of terror makes us afraid of our shadows. We were told, too, bring us a small organized force with arms and ammunition for us, and we can maintain our position and put down the rebellion in our midst. There were, it is true, whole communities who on our approach fled to the woods, but these were where there was less of the loyal element and where the fleeing steamers in advance had spread tales of our coming with firebrands, burning, destroying, ravishing, and plundering. End quote. The glowing and heartfelt sentiments of welcome that Phelps experienced do not make an appearance in the Florence Gazette's description of these events on the 12th of February. The lengthy article states in vivid, sultry detail, quote, On Saturday last, our citizens were thrown into the utmost state of excitement by the appearance of two Yankee gunboats, the black, ugly things, wrapped as they were, and the habiliments of death and mourning, well represent the principle upon which this unholy war is waged, for the destruction of southern rights and lawful interests. Three beautiful steamers, one well laden with valuable freight, lying at our wharf, had been hotly chased by these gunboats for hundreds of miles. They had arrived in safety at our landing, but were placed in a condition that the more agreeable, if not less destructive element of fire could place them in thirty minutes beyond the reach of the destroying foe. Instantly, that the approach of these black agents of destruction was discovered, the torch was applied to the combustible material previously arranged, and soon one of the most sublime scenes that has ever been witnessed by our citizens was exhibited. The three steamers were now wrapped in curling flames, and were as useless to the hungry vultures, whose appetites had been whetted doubly keen by having for many hours been in close pursuit, constantly expecting to grasp in their extended talons the dainty prey. Landing was made, one of the warehouses was opened up without a key, and such articles as were supposed to belong to the Confederate States were taken. Private property, we were informed, was respected. A courteous interview took place between the commander of the expedition and a deputation of our citizens, in which the citizens of the town were assured that violence was not intended to person or property of peaceful citizens. We believe this pledge was kept, and soon after the sable shades of night were drawn over this sad spectacle, the cables were loosed, and the demons of an abused power went steaming down the river. We were honestly told that we might expect them again. End quote. The article also describes, rather amusingly, the confusion and hysteria that seems to have accompanied the arrival of the gunboats. Quote, 
When it was certainly known that the gunboats were coming, a good many of our citizens took their movable goods and went to the country for safety. Some reported that 10,000 Yankees were in town, some 20,000, and that they were destroying everything before them. One fellow affirmed that he saw 27 gunboats land here at last Saturday evening with his own eyes. That is the way such rumors get afloat. Suffice it to say, the gunboats lay at our wharf about three hours and then retired, since which time we have seen nothing of them, but heard a great deal. End quote. News of the expedition landing at Florence did indeed travel with rapidity throughout the Tennessee Valley, right on up the Confederate chain of command, causing a commotion wherever it went. Writing in her journal from Huntsville, Priscilla Larkin observed on Sunday, February 9, 1862, quote, News last night that the Federals have landed in Florence. The town is in an uproar. Numberless dispatches were received today. End quote. Also from Huntsville, when A.J. Hopper, superintendent of the Eastern Division of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, wrote on the day of the landing, February 8th, to General Johnston to tell him that the Federals had landed at Florence and were marching on Tuscumbia. Troops were immediately ordered by rail from Huntsville to Tuscumbia. Jefferson Davis wrote on February 9th, quote, The number of men who have been transported by four gunboats should never be allowed to tread upon our soil and return. End quote. The same day, the telegraph operator at Columbus informed General Polk, quote, Mr. Powers, the operator at Tuscumbia, informs me that the enemy took possession of the telegraph office in Florence and found out nearly everything that was passing over the line before he was informed of them having landed. He then immediately disconnected the Florence line from his office and cut them off. They had operators and instruments with them. They informed the citizens of Florence that it was their intention to return in a day or so with a force sufficiently large to take and hold their position at that place, that it was not their intention to harm the citizens who would willingly submit and to those who were loyal to the United States." End quote. The swift surrender of Fort Henry and the surprise raid of the Tennessee all the way to its navigable extent at the Shoals had thrown the Confederate commanders in the West into a scramble to respond and secure their positions. It is doubtful that the lieutenant commander actually predicted a siege of Florence. For the time being, the gunboats would soon be needed again, this time at Fort Donelson, which Grant called, quote, the gate to Nashville, end quote. In a couple weeks' time, the gunboats would return to the Big Bend of the Tennessee, but we'll talk about that next time. The Northern press, for their part, on the other hand, eager for any and every bite of good news from the war, the progress of which, as I've mentioned, had largely come to a standstill, seized upon the reports of this expedition and rejoiced at the amplified details. The Times Union of Brooklyn, New York, reported on the 12th of February, quote, during the night, the gunboats went to Florence, Alabama. Everywhere along the river, they were received with astonishing welcome by members of the Union families in southern Tennessee and northern Alabama. And at the towns along the river, the old flag was looked upon as a redeemer and hailed with shouts of joy. The people of Florence are so delighted at finding the stars and stripes once more giving protection to them that they were prepared to give a grand ball to the officers of the gunboats, but they could not remain to accept their courtesies. End quote. 
By the way, I have not found in the official records where any officer recorded the detail of the citizens inviting the federal officers to a ball. I can't say that it didn't happen, but I do know I've only found this detail printed in the northern papers. The same article then repeats a detail, which does at least seem to originate in Phelps's report, which multiple northern publications particularly took a fancy to print him. Quote, the boats went as far as Florence, Alabama, and were received with the wildest joy along the river. Old men cried like children at the sight of the stars and stripes. End quote. While it is entirely possible that the extent of the sentiment was exaggerated, it is nevertheless undeniable that this expedition met with public and vocal support from the Union cause from local citizens, such as Thomas Seipert. Seipert, in his memoir, recalls the gunboat penetration of the Tennessee Valley and the excitement it brought to the Unionists of his community, and the corresponding fear the Confederates felt. Writing from near Cypress Inn, Wayne County, Tennessee, Seipert said, quote, Now, it will be remembered that upon this event were based the only hopes of the Union Party in that vicinity, and that the very thought of it struck terror into the minds of the secessionists. All the country between our places and the river was a scene of the wildest excitement, and that the Union people had up their banners and were shouting beneath them, while the secessionists were running in every direction except towards the river. End quote. One man, he says, even fled his home because he thought the gunboats were coming up the road. While the presence of the Federals buoyed the hopes of the Unionists in the valley, it is true that for some citizens, the new weapons of war, the gunboats, inspired fear, in no small part due to their capabilities apparently being misunderstood. Seipert concludes, quote, But the boats remained up the river only a short time, leaving us in a rather critical condition. Their trip up, however, had the good effect of scattering the secessionists and giving us Union men a better opportunity for deliberation. End quote. In just a matter of days after the gunboats landed at Florence, Seipert himself would travel down the flooded Tennessee River to Fort Henry to express his wish to organize a force of loyal Tennesseans and North Alabamians into a regiment that would eventually become the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry. As much as the fall of Fort Henry shook up the status of the war in the West, Grant was not content to rest upon his laurels and immediately made preparations to take possession of Fort Donelson, which would prove to be the larger victory of the two. Considering how I am running short on time here, I will summarize the story of the Battle of Fort Donelson as succinctly as possible, so you have a good understanding of the events. Much of this summary from, is from the late historian Ed Barr's lecture about the battle, available on YouTube. It was certainly a dramatic scene. The Confederates, having abandoned Bowling Green, decided that they must hold the fort, and reinforcements swelled their ranks to approximately 16,000. Grant had under his command a force of 15,000. He began to move against the work on the 11th of February, 1862. For a few moments, according to Bars, quote, Donelson is the key to the war in the West, end quote. Donelson, in reality, was little more than a ring of earthworks, rifle pits, and fallen timber, protecting mounted artillery overlooking the river. The Confederate position was handicapped by a want of competent leadership. 
One of the commanders, J.B. Floyd, was, according to Ed Bars, quote, arguably the worst Secretary of War we've ever had, end quote. Two other commanders, Pillow and Buckner, were personally known by Grant. In fact, he was classmates with Buckner at West Point. The only real resistance to the Federal advance was mounted on the 12th by Nathan Bedford Forrest, who will prove to be the scourge of the Federals in the West. There were two attacks on the 13th, both repulsed by the Confederates. Then the gunboats arrived. At this point, the weather turned for the worst. In John McLaren's report of the battle, he provides vivid details of the bitter conditions the men on both sides would have faced. Quote, During the afternoon of the 13th, the weather turned intensely cold, a driving north wind bringing a storm of snow and sleet upon the unprotected men of my division. The night set in gloomily, and the mingled rain and snow congealed as they fell. End quote. The next day, Valentine's Day, 1862, the gunboats engaged the batteries of the fort, perched high on the bluffs above the river, hurling shells which the press dubbed as Iron Valentines. The gunboats are turned back, but Grant had now received reinforcements, and the soldiers under his command now numbered 26,000. The Confederate commanders held a council of war and acknowledged that their position was untenable and decided to try and break through the Union lines and escape. This they did on the morning of the 15th and succeeded in opening a gap in the Union line. However, there was dissension at this point among the commanders as to whether or not to take the opportunity and flee or utilize their success to stay and fight and possibly turn the enemy back altogether. Grant, hearing the barrage of gunfire, rallied his generals and ordered a counterattack. Finally, on the evening of the 15th, it was decided that the fort could not be held. But there was no desire to surrender. The Confederate commanders left Buckner in charge of the fort, while troops under command of Forrest and Floyd made their escape under cover of darkness. The next day, Buckner wrote to his old friend from school, General Grant, that he wished to appoint representatives to discuss terms of surrender for the fort. Grant responded with a terse statement that would begin his meteoric rise to stardom that, quote, no terms other than unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. End quote. The press latched on to this statement and dubbed him Unconditional Surrender Grant. Buckner responded quote, The distribution of forces under my command, incident to an unexpected change of commanders, and the overwhelming force under your command, compel me notwithstanding the brilliant success of the Confederate arms yesterday, to accept the ungenerous and unchivalrous terms which you propose. End quote. Thus, with the stroke of a pen, more than 12,000 Confederates were surrendered to the Federal forces under Ulysses S. Grant, who will soon be promoted to Major General for his success. One of those captured Confederates from Company D of the 53rd Tennessee Infantry, named Joseph Emerson, will be taken to a prison camp near Indianapolis and die shortly after his arrival in March of 1862. He was my fifth great-grandfather. 
My fourth great-grandfather, Archie Roden, was also likely captured here along with others of the 27th Alabama Infantry. Some of their number, such as J.P. Kennan, escaped capture, owing to the fact that they were sick with camp diseases at a hospital in Clarksville. Kennan had the measles. The fall of Fort Donelson was a bombshell, and the extent of its significance was not lost on either side. The same day that Buckner accepted Grant's so-called ungenerous and unchivalrous terms, President Lincoln wrote to Halleck, quote, Our success or failure at Fort Donelson is vastly important, and I beg you to put your soul into the effort. End quote. After news of the victory reached Washington, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton wrote to Halleck, quote, The brilliant results of the energetic action in the West fills the nation with joy. End quote. It was a fateful moment in the war. Grant's wild successes on the Tennessee and Cumberland early in 1862 launched him on a path of leadership, which would eventually land him opposite Robert E. Lee at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia in April 1865, accepting Lee's surrender and bringing an end at last to the American Civil War. Northern journalists apparently embellished the details of the image of their new celebrity U.S. Grant by describing him coolly smoking a cigar. Grant, who had in fact never smoked, took up the habit after receiving dozens of boxes of cigars from well-wishers across the North. A very unfortunate turn of events for the man of the hour, for Grant will later die from a particularly painful form of throat cancer while rushing to complete his memoirs. The implications and repercussions of the fall of the two forts for the war in the West were immediate and enormous. Writing to General Braxton Bragg from Montgomery on the 26th of February, one John Gill Shorter succinctly and accurately predicted, quote, Unless we can retrieve the disasters on the Tennessee and Cumberland and carry the war into the enemy's country, the whole Mississippi Valley will be overrun, end quote. As we'll see next time, the Confederate Army will re-strategize, withdraw into North Alabama and Mississippi, and mass their forces to protect the vital Memphis and Charleston Railroad. And with their naval superiority on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers, the Federal Army will launch further expeditions to threaten that railroad, and in two months' time, mass their own forces on the banks of the Tennessee River in the spring of 1862 near a little log church called Shiloh, where the nation will witness the bloodiest day it had ever seen in its history. Thank you for tuning in. Join me next time.